So let's uh, open your outline. Uh, if you've grabbed one coming in, if you've got your app opened on your smartphone or on your tablet, you can go to our app and you can open up the outline there and find our way to Genesis chapter 16, please. You'll find that on page 21. It's not hard to find. First book of the Bible, page 21. If you're using that book rack Bible in front of you, Genesis chapter 16, please find our way there. So we we love caring for each other as a church. The church should be a place where people are cared for properly and biblically. Uh, And it's not easy finding places or even people who really care for others. We live in a world that's so cold and so indifferent and we can be hurting and people can just walk right by and we don't pay attention to where people are in their lives. But there are so many hurting people around us, people in our world, in our community, in our neighborhood in our homes, in our personal relationships. And all you have to do is open the newspaper, go on the latest feed on your, on your device and see all the tragedies and all the issues that people are dealing with. And out of all that, there, there ought to be one place where people who need care can find care. And, and we believe that's the church. We believe that the church should be the one place where people experience true, loving care when they are in need of that. And so we offer care ministries for cancer, for divorce, for bereavement, for loss of jobs, for incarceration, homelessness, addictions, uh, pornography, gambling, all kinds of ways that people need to connect to get care when their lives are seemingly falling apart. And, and everyone needs to come to this place. But here's, this is so important. It's so important to realize that, you know, we can have care ministries as a church, and that's so great, but unless the church as individuals become committed to care, programs just don't do it. Are you hearing me, church? I mean, the reason why Bill Doyle and his family were were so touched was not because the church had a little program that addressed care needs, but because that church loved people. That church cared for people, and Myself and our pastoral team and all of our leaders are committed to being a place where true care is given. And I hope to present us today with, with, in the next five weeks, some compelling arguments for the things that people need when, when life seems to be falling apart. And today we're going to look at, what here's what they need. They need five things, and there's probably more, but just for a series like this, the first thing they need is an encounter with the living God. If, if you feel like your life is falling apart, you need an encounter with the living God. That's what we're talking about today. Uh, you need a loving community. That's what we're talking about next week. You need a clear path. In other words, you need instructions from God. You need clear direction as to which way to go in your life. And then, that's week three. And then you need a living hope. You need to realize that there is life on the other side of this thing that you're going through, a living hope that God wants to give us. And then lastly, we need to find a way to give back. Whatever we've been through, God wants to use in our lives to hand off to the next person that comes our way that may need what we have received. And so those five things, an encounter with the living God, a loving community, a clear path, a living hope, and a way to give back, those are the things we're going to focus on for the next five weeks. So Keep your antenna up when you're talking to your friends or people in your neighborhood or at work or you see something going on in someone's life and their life is kind of shaken up a little bit. Remember, invite them into the journey and they'll learn some things that will be powerful and be right down the fairway of where they are in their lives. Amen? 
So let's look for some people. Let's keep our antenna up. And, and, and by the way, over these five weeks, it's going to be all of us, too, who need this kind of care. Okay? So that's where we're going in this series. And today we're going to consider uh, the, the, this need to encounter the living God. And we're going to look at it from a situation uh, that, that comes to us on a, a very familiar story to many of us who have been around for a while in our faith journey with the Lord. And it, it comes in the opening pages of the Bible. And it's, it emerges in the strange and inexplicable circumstances uh, of Abraham, Sarah, and, and her handmaid, Hagar. And some of us are familiar with this, but if you're, if you're newer to the faith or unfamiliar, Abram was promised by God that even in his old age and Sarah's old age, God was going to give them a child, a son of promise, and that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars of the heavens. Genesis 15, 6 says, And Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is a hallmark verse of Scripture, because this we live by faith, the righteous have always lived by faith, and we see this in Abraham's life right here in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And, and, and so God promised, he promised to give Abraham this son. Now, now here's what, what's interesting. The promise about the son of promise is known as the Abrahamic covenant, and God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, and if God promises something, guess what? He's going to do it. But we don't always believe that, and that's where the problems get started. And if you know the story of Abraham, you know that right out of the chute, he's been promised something amazing. But he doesn't really believe the promise because he's going to try something different. So here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the text. I'm looking at my clock here. How are we doing? Okay. You're going to have to really listen fast this morning because we're going to read this whole story starting in chapter, uh, chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took the Egyptian maidser- her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Then, when she knew she was pregnant... She began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, and the Lord, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man, 
His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why that is why the well was called Ber Lahai Roi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave him the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. (laughs) Isn't the word of God fascinating? Oh, I mean, you can't get this in daytime TV drama. (laughs) This is amazing stuff. Now, I want to frame People whose lives are falling apart by looking at the story of Hagar today. We're going to focus on Hagar. Abram and Sarai are going to be in the discussion, but we're going to focus on Hagar today. And we're going to see a couple of big things out of this text, okay? And if you're taking notes, which I hope you are, here's the first thing I want you to see. Verses 1 through 6. There are times in life when our circumstances or choices, circumstances or choices, or both, bring us to a place of desperation. Have you found that to be true in your life? Circumstances or choices. Let's face it, hurting people hurt because either others have hurt them or they have brought on the hurt on themselves by choices they have made. In other words, it's either random stuff that comes into your life. It may not be people. It might be a circumstance. Or it's something that you and I have chosen and we're sort of paying the the dues for it. A very dear friend of mine just a couple of weeks ago called me. He said, hey, Larry, you know my wife's not been feeling well. I said, yeah, what's going on? So we went to the doctor, he tells me, and uh, the doctor says, wow, you've got some fluid building up in, I don't know all the medical terms, but between your heart and lungs, and we're going to have to look at this a little more carefully. And so they go in, do some tests, they remove the fluid, and then they discover some other things. And now they're sitting in the doctor's office, he tells me, and they're hearing that she has cancer. Then they discover that it's fourth stage ovarian cancer. She's been feeling fine up to about three weeks ago, and now here she is. Wow, it came out of nowhere. They didn't expect this. And all of a sudden, they've got all this stuff going in their lives. And my heart is just going out to them. My wife and I, we are praying for them daily. We are praying for a miracle in her life because this is a very, very serious situation. But then there are some times where there's a bit more cause and effect. It's not that it just comes out of nowhere. There's messiness in our lives because we've taken some turns. We've made some choices. There are things in our lives that are not quite right. And all of a sudden, here we are sort of reaping the results of these things. And here in our text, there are some circumstantial issues here. But more, there are choices that are being made and a course of events that really mess things up. And if the truth were told, this has, what we read in Genesis 16, has brought conflict all over the world because of this. The Arab-Israeli conflict can be traced between the son of Hagar and the son of of, uh, Sarai. Isaac and Ishmael. Wow. Choices that we make that can spin into all kinds of things in our lives that we never anticipated would come about the way they have. 
So circumstantially, let's go back to the circumstances here. Sarai and Abram, who have been told by God that they will have a child and that their children will be as many as the stars of the heavens. And now it's been a few years. Sarah has, is in her 70s when she hears this news, and Abram is in his 80s. And it's been a few years, nothing's gone on, they're waiting around, and finally Sarai comes up with this brilliant idea. Now this is not God's idea. Can we just underline that for a second? Not God's idea, but in ancient times, this is the way families propagated family names. If you were barren, you could not have children, then you could take your maidservant, and this was all sort of a legal transaction in the ancient world. This was not God's plan. Can I underscore that again? This was not God saying, hey, I've got a great idea. It hasn't been working out. This is what you... No, this is not God's idea. This is a person's idea. And, and so they go about this thing. Hagar sa- or Sarai says, why don't, you, why don't you take my servant, Hagar, and why don't you have a child through her? Well, Abraham thinks about that, and, you know, he agrees. <laughs> don't want to really go there. But don't, don't know what's going on. But so they, they, they do this thing, and, and Hagar becomes pregnant. And this is where the problems are just getting underway. Notice in verse 4, can I draw you to verse 4? No sooner does Hagar conceive that she starts, what? Despising Sarai. That's kind of odd. Think about it. Why was she despising Sarai? Because now she, she knows the storyline. She knows the story arc. She knows that Abram and Sarah are waiting for God to provide this. She's Egyptian. She's not, she's not of the people of God. She's not of the covenant. But she's the one that's pregnant. So she starts thinking, wait a minute. I'm carrying Abram's son. I should be the favored one. She starts despising Sarai. I shouldn't be taking orders from her. I'm the one that's carrying the child. Can you imagine the tension that's in this home? This is like a soap opera. (laughs) Let's stop right here and consider a few things about how sometimes desperation in our lives is fueled. Can I just give you things quickly? Look at them quickly. Number one, an awareness of the futility of human effort to achieve God's true blessing. Uh, Verses two through four remind us that God has a plan for our lives. And you know what happens? When we decide, God, thank you for your plan. I love your plan. I just don't like the rhythm. So I'm going to fix it myself, God. Thank you for the end result. I'm going to get there my own way. And what we do is we go after things our own way. And we do this Humanly, we do this when God tells us that we need a Savior and we say, thank you, I agree, but I'll be my own Savior, thank you. We try to work our way into God's grace and favor and it doesn't work. God promises us salvation by faith alone and we do works. And even as Christians, we hear God's plan for our lives and we short-circuit it, we abbreviate it. And listen, this is what's going on in this situation where God promises blessing, we don't see it, so we go our own way. And then somewhere along the line, we realize the futility of trying to do this ourselves. That's one of the things that fuels desperation. We get frustrated with ourselves. Why do we do this? Here's a second thing. Regret over something in our past. Now, I'm not, I can't really identify this with a, the verse in this text, but I'm reading into the text, and I'm saying, I'm sure during this issue, there's regrets in Abram's life, Sarai's life, and Hagar's life. 
Sarai may have regretted suggesting that Abram have her maidservant. She might have been saying, what was I thinking? Abram might have regretted the choice to doubt God's promise, his passivity as a leader, and just giving in to his wife when he knew better. Hagar might have regretted going along with the whole plan. But when we're in a mess, you can't help but ask yourself questions like, are you ready for this? Why did I do that? How could I have been so blind, so stupid, so naive, so pushy, so demanding, so clueless? What was I thinking? Have you ever said that to yourself? <laughs> I say that to myself all the time. What was I thinking? Now, I'm sure all of them, if they could, would go back and reset. Wouldn't you like to do that in your life? Okay, I realize I screwed up here. God, let's go back a few months and start over. That's not the way life works. Some of us today have an issue with this very thing. You just can't rid yourself from your past. Whether it's something that happened to you or something you did to yourself, it just keeps showing up and you can't get it out of your mind. And the fatigue and regret of this becomes so enormous. I talk to people all the time who are carrying stuff that happened in their lives 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. They're carrying it around like it happened today. And some of us right here today need to realize the reason we are desperate, yes, the reason we are desperate, <laughs> I'm talking to someone, the reason we're desperate is because we've either let our past dominate us or we're just sick and tired of the futility of trying to get God's promise our own way. There's a third thing that can happen, and that's inappropriate feelings toward others. Verse 4. Notice that when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she begins to despise Sarai. Why? I just said so. Because she's thinking she's the one now. And what happens? Anger, resentments, jealousy, envy, unforgiveness. All, the, all these emotions and feelings often stem from a sense of entitlement. Everyone becomes a debtor around us when we feel entitled. And Hagar, Hagar felt justified in feeling she should be given special treatment if she's the one carrying the baby. And then look at verse 6. Here's another thing that fuels, uh, fuels our, our sense of, of uh, desperation. And that is mistreatment from someone close to you. Uh, Abraham's inept, uh, inept leadership allows Sarai to run amok in her own self-pity and self-loathing. You know, she comes to, to, to Abram and, and she says, look, this is your fault. <laughs> now, we just read the story, right? Now, I think Abram could have said, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. this was your idea. But he's, he's not being an effective leader. Abram has all these issues going. And so he says, he cowardly says, do with her what you want. And Sarai just starts abusing verbally. That we don't know, it just says she mistreated her. And you could read a lot into that. What does that mean? She shunned her. She made her work harder. She, it was just a cruel girl fight, okay? It just, it just was not good. And, and Hagar, she can't tolerate this. Which, which brings, you know, what happens here, there's a severe setback from the life we once knew and some of us are feeling that today. It's like life is over. Life is not what it used to be. 
You feel mistreated. You feel mistreated by the people around you. And, and here's what desperation does. If you're taking notes, desperation often leads to a couple of things. First, it, it leads to feeling abandoned by others and even God. And that's right there in Genesis 16. Where is God and where are the people that are close to me that I really need to depend on? They're pushing me away. Abram's walked away. Sarai's abusing me. And where in the heck is God? And Hagar's had it, which leads to the second thing that happens when desperation sets in. And as we look for a way out, we run. We run. So it says in verse 6, she fled from Sarai. Now we've all run away from places, people, problems. <laughs> the marketing slogan of Southwest Airlines, <laughs> I love it. Want to get away? I love those commercials because they just capture this sense of you're in this place where you just go, I have got to get out of here. Some of the escape in our lives is short-lived. Others, it's greater, longer. For some of us, a lifetime of running begins. People in pain over something that has happened end up running away from people and running away from God. Passive running takes on the form of indifference to important things. A certain lethargy sets in. More active running displaces one's residence, church attendance, relationships, marriages, parent-kids relationships, friendships. Some of us are passive runners. It's all inside. We're just hiding. We don't want anyone in. Some of us are more aggressively running. We have pulled anchor. We are getting out. We are closing the door. We are slamming the door. We are getting out of town. Yeah. <laughs> so let's just stop right here and remember what we're talking about. This is where we need, this is where our need for care and our awareness for others or others' need for care emerges. In all of this, we need to be considering how are we reaching out to those who are hurt or in pain in their lives? And I hope that's one of the questions that's on your mind. Do you really care? Do you really care about all the stuff that's going on in people's lives? So in our lives, sometimes circumstances or our choices or both bring us to a place of real desperation. And there's things that fuel that desperation, and there's things that come out of that desperation. But watch this. If you're taking notes, this is so beautiful. Verses 7 through 16. Desperation is often the very place God wants to begin a special work in our lives. Did you get that? Here we are running away, and God says, ah, perfect. Now I'm going to do a work that you didn't expect. This is good news. For any who feel desperate today, consider this a time when God would perhaps do a special work in your life. I was playing basketball a few weeks ago, earlier this summer, and a group of guys and gals down at 24 Hour in San Leandro, and a young gal was in there playing with us. She was great. She played ball in school and uh, just really a super ball player. And, and after the game, uh, we were all talking a little bit, and I asked her what she did, and, and she told me, and then she asked me what I did. I said, well, I'm, I'm a pastor up at the Church of the Three Crosses. She goes, oh, wow. I went there years ago. She goes, I haven't, been, I haven't really been back. She goes, 
but my life, I'm going through some really, really deep stuff. And then it was like this little light bulb, bing, went on in her head. She goes, maybe it's time I should go back there. I said, you should. And it was right about the time I was going to take a little break this summer. It was like the last week of July. And the next time I saw her, she goes, hey, guess what? I went to church. I said, you did. She goes, yeah, it was amazing, man. It was a great message. It was incredible. I said, that's great. So we had another game of basketball. And at the end, I could just tell she kind of, everybody just walked off the court. I go, you want to play another game? You want to go one-on-one? Or do you want to talk? She goes, I would love to talk. I said, great. So we sat down on the court. She opened up her life, shared about what's going on in her life. I went through a simple plan of the gospel. She goes, I need Jesus. And right there, she gave her heart to Christ. And she's, listen, no, 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 just, it's a story. She's been coming ever since. She's growing, she's getting involved, she's reading her Bible. And she told me the other day, she goes, man, she goes, my life, I asked her just this last Friday, I said, hey, how are you doing spiritually? How are you doing? She goes, well, I'm doing pretty good. She goes, but man, it's harder now. <laughs> she, and then a little light bulb again. Bing! She goes, but actually not as hard as it was before. Which meant she's got a new kind of hardness in her life. Difficulty. But it's a good difficulty. Because she's leaning in. God may want to do a new work in your life or your coworker, or your neighbor or your family member or the person that lives on your street. And here's how the new work often begins. It's going to demand a couple of things. Watch this. Verses 7 through 8. It may take on an assessment. It may demand that we take an assessment of our lives. Notice when the angel of the Lord, which by the way appears to be a theophany. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, because in this story, she names this place that God saw me. So we know that this angel of the Lord that shows up is, is a pre-incarnate. It's Jesus before his birth in Bethlehem. And notice the question that comes out of this angel, the angel of the Lord's mouth. Where have you come from and where are you going? Isn't that rich? Was that so the angel would be informed as to where she was coming from? No. He wanted her to think, where have you come from and where are you going? This is a great question that all of us should be asking our questions when we're in desperate moments. Where have I come from? Where am I going? Is that the question you're asking this morning? Are you listening to the Lord this morning? He's wanting you to do an assessment of your life. Maybe you would stop and say, I need to get back to where I was before. I need to go to a place where it's healthy and there's a spiritual content that I can receive and grow in in my life. God wants us to self-assess. Number two, it may demand honest self-disclosure. I, know, I love how, how she answers. You know, she could have just made something up. She could have said, well, I'm going to visit my family down in Egypt. Yeah, she was running back to Egypt. I'm going to visit my family, or I'm, I'm on a walk, or she could have said, I'm just upset and I wanted to get out. She could have said a lot of things, but she said, look at this. She says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. She just lays it out. She's honest. Listen, you can be sitting here in church, and you can be running away. You can be sitting here today, and you, you're a, a country mile from where God wants you to be in your heart, and one of the best things 
you and I can do to accelerate a work of God to begin something new in our lives is simply be honest with ourselves and with God. Stop playing games. God loves honesty more than he loves fake and duplicitous responses. So it's okay. This is a place where it's okay not to be okay. Okay? I mean it. I mean, we put up so, so much pretense. It's refreshing sometimes when I say, hey, how you doing to somebody? And they go, not so good. And I've had a few times where I've said, oh, great, great to hear that. You know, like I'm just, I'm programmed <laughs> to just respond. But when people are honest, sometimes I don't even hear it. It's refreshing when I hear someone say, sometimes, I'm not doing so well. Oh, whoa, what does that mean? And just to kind of love on that person that moment. And we should be listening for that this morning. And every time we come together as God's people. And that's why we need community. That's why we need a group to be a part of. That's why we need people in our lives. We need to be honest with somebody. Do you have that in your life? It may demand an assessment. It may demand an honest response. Number three, it may demand returning to a place of unpleasant realities. Whoa, look at what the angel tells her. Go back and submit to Sarai. Not what she wanted to hear. Hmm. No soft, touchy-feely response. Just go back and submit. Hagar was wrong for leaving in the first place, apparently. But it was explainable. She was being mistreated. Who wants to stick around when you're being mistreated? You know, going back doesn't mean it's always going to work out. Um, I'm struck, I know the story arc of this whole passage and narrative, and, and you know that Hagar doesn't stay there. She goes back, and the child is born, and he grows to be about 13, and then Sarai get, gets pregnant. Now Abraham's 99, and Sarah's, you know, in her 80s. <laughs> and once again, there's a conflict. Little Ishmael is kind of having a problem at the table kind of mocking, you know, Sarai and Abram. And so Hagar has to leave again. And it's a crazy story, but here's the point. The point I'm trying to say is sometimes God tells us to go back to uncomfortable places, not because we're going to be there forever, but there's lessons that we need to learn. Or we need to understand that this maybe isn't the place I'm always going to be. But we have to follow what God tells us to do. Tomorrow is Monday. Some of us need to go back to our workplace tomorrow and submit to our boss, even though we've grumbled and complained against her for the last two months. God says, listen, if I'm going to do a work in your life, you've got to go back. You've got to go back to some things that are uncomfortable in your life. Which brings us to one final thing here. It may demand believing God will bring about the plans he desires in the midst of the mess. I love how Hagar gets assurance that as grim as things may seem, God still has a plan for the child in the womb. The child will be given the name, which means, Ishmael means the God who has heard my misery. I know it's, it's almost a little comical when you read about this. He says, you're going to have a son, you're gonna be, he's going to be a ruler, but he's also going to be a donkey of a man. That's another way of saying that in our colloquialism, but I won't say that today. There's going to be things that about this young man that are, that are not going to be good, but I'm going to still do a work, and it's still going to be a part of my, my plan, my sovereign plan for this world. Listen, 
When you look at God's sovereignty, you take the mess and you add God into that situation and what you get is wholeness. You leave God out of it and you've just got a mess that takes on all kinds of new forms. You can go through your life just adding to the mess, building on the mess, making it look a little prettier. Just dress it up a little bit. The mess is going to be okay because you can manage the mess. Or you can invite God into that mess and you can see him doing something incredible through the mess. Every care ministry that we've begun have been ministries that people in the midst of their mess invited God into and saw what God could do in that mess and that creates wholeness in people's lives. I got an email from someone last night. I got a bunch of stories but we don't have time. I got an email last night from somebody whose whose boyfriend is in prison and and she's just oh, but you know God you know what God's put in her heart to do for this guy that's in the mess she's been writing what she calls newsletters that gives scripture and the story of salvation it's beautifully done it's graphically done it's just amazing and she says this is what God's put on my heart to get these things because when my boyfriend reads these he shares them with other cellmates and now they're all asking questions about this relationship with God and is there any way I could maybe do that and leverage it into all the prison systems, and I'm go- I go, I don't know, but yes, you should try, because that's an amazing thing. God wants to take whatever it is that we're moved in the mess and invite him into it so that he can do something beautiful, and why don't we just do that? Why don't we just say, God, come in and, and just change all this? Okay. Now, how does this get traction in our lives? Listen, we've got to wrap this up. This gets traction in our lives. Number one, knowing God sees us. Oh, this is so good. Verses 13 through 16. Hagar gives a name not used in Scripture up to this point to God. El Roi, the God who sees. And that's why we know the angel of the Lord is God, because she gives him the name, the God who sees. You can't see any light in the tunnel until you're convinced that God sees your mess. He sees your mess. He sees what you cry about, what you're you're hurt about. If you don't believe that he sees you, how can you ever come to him? I think of so many people. I'm a little emotional because I know some people that are in such huge messes, but they don't really see God sees them. And this one thing that I want everyone to see this morning is that God sees the mess you're in. And you can call him the God who sees my mess. And watch this, having a God reveal himself to us. Having God reveal himself to us. He reveals himself. Hagar says, I have now seen the one who sees me. She now sees him. And all of the stuff in her life, as messy as it is and as messy as it's going to continue to be, it's going to be all right. Because she sees God and God sees her. And guess what? Only God can do that work. Only God. Do you see Him this morning? Church, do you see a gracious Lord who pilots our ship through the stormy sea. Oh, come to him, look to him, fall before him. If you've never given your life to Christ, do it now.